Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. As Bill C-10 winds its way through the legislative process, an act to amend the Broadcasting Act and to make related and consequential amendments to other acts, is performing a high-wire act of its own. The removal of an article has critics fearing individual Canadian content creators posting videos to social media will be required to produce Canadian content. What is that content? All of this is tied to a bill that was originally conceived as the Netflix tax and to amend the outdated Broadcasting Act. It was originally intended to level the playing field against America's big three television networks. YouTube's Head of Government Affairs and Public Policy, Jeanette Patel, joined Globe and Mail columnist Andrew Coyne and me to discuss. Coyne is challenging the central premise that the playing field is not level. We've been accustomed for several decades with having uh, uh, enormously intrusive regulatory oversight of broadcast television and radio. I'm not sure everybody's familiar with just how extraordinary uh, that apparatus is, but it's every minute of every day uh, that is broadcast on any radio station or television station in Canada is regulated, and they have to file long reports to the CRTC about uh, every aspect of what they published, what they broadcast, I should say. Uh, and you know, we don't generally do that with we don't do that with newspapers. Uh, we don't do that with a lot of other industries. The rationale for it in the early stages of broadcasting, when 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 we first had over-the-air television, over-the-air radio, was that there was scarce um, spectrum. That this 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 kind of broadcasting was actually a, a scarce resource, a and b that the nature of it was that because you couldn't charge people for the, the stuff you were putting out, there was no way to charge people for the TV signals they were receiving in the in the early days that the only way to finance that in the private sector was from advertising, and that advertising finance brought with it a whole range of problems because it basically had a built-in bias to the largest possible audience. And so, whereas in most markets, you know, markets for sweaters or whatever, you can, there's, you know, hundreds of different types of sweaters on, on offer for every conceivable type of taste, in broadcasting, as in no other market, there was this bias to the largest audience. And so, minority taste didn't tend to get represented. You had a, only a few... Uh, channels or networks broadcasting much the same thing, all directed towards a middle-of-the-road, large mass audience, and there were real kind of market failures there. And in that world, it made some sense to have both regulations and subsidies to try basically to mimic the diversity of offerings that you would get in a real well-functioning market. I'm waiting for the but. Exactly. All that is prelude to say, that's the world we're leaving behind. That's the world pre-cable TV, pre-pay TV, and it sure as hell is pre-internet. The whole point of the internet was spectrum scarcity is over. There's an infinite number, potentially, of broadcasters, certainly hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of them out there. Uh, and, And all of the things that made the case for regulation and subsidy in the past have basically vanished. And so if you were looking at saying, okay, we have a disjoint between the really heavily regulation that we have of traditional broadcast TV and radio, all of which is migrating online, uh, and we have no regulation at all in the internet world, maybe the way we level that playing field is we get rid of the CRTC and we get rid of regulation altogether because the, the rationale for that has disappeared. And instead, what the government and its supporters and indeed the CRTC have latched onto is, no, what we really need to do is regulate the entire internet the way we used to broadcast regulate 1950s television. 
and they have the gall to call this modernization. <laughs> okay, so that whole thing of we have to level the playing field by is, is just nonsense. And then the specific areas in which they say there's an unlevel playing field, i.e. conventional broadcasters and, and distributors have to pay into a fund and they have to uh, you know abide by CanCon regulations, et cetera, they, they, they get all these, that, 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 that they are burdened with all kinds of things that the internet broadcasters aren't. Well, the internet broadcasters aren't also burdened by subsidies that the traditional broadcasters are eligible for. So there is no real unlevel playing field there either. So all this is to say is that the rationale for this, and I haven't really got into the whole theory of CanCon, which we can later, but I, I've talked too long already, but it's, it, it's really unnecessary. It's, it's in a massive expansion of the regulatory apparatus of the state with no really coherent rationale under, underneath it. That is exactly what the internet did. It leveled the playing field for the diversity of voices out there. YouTube built a platform on the premise of openness. It allows anyone to upload their content and to find an audience that they can connect with. That is an incredible leveling of the playing field for Canadian creative artists. And I think it's really important that when we talk about a level playing field, that listeners understand that digital first creators are shut out from the government funded programs that they are uh, talking about applying uh, uh, to this system. You know, um, we at YouTube fully support uh, the, the concept of of compensating creators for their work. And that's why we, but in the current system, we've had to do something different. We have a direct support model that's based on revenue sharing, on billions of dollars of investment from us in the infrastructure that goes into this and in the data analytics that helps these creators succeed. And the, what we are watching is that Canadian creators do really well when they are provided an open uh, playing field, when they are provided an open platform. We saw last year, we did a, we did a report and we were able to, uh, to see the contribution of these creators and of the ecosystem to the Canadian economy. And in 2020, we saw that the YouTube creative ecosystem contributed over $920 million to the Canadian economy, supported the equivalent of 34,000 jobs. And we saw that these creators, you know, their um, channels are growing at an enormous pace. 30% year over year uh, growth in the channels in Canada that are making over six figures. So, you know, that's a really compelling number for a Canadian artist. And I think that what we're seeing here, what, what I want to make sure people understand is that there are real risks and repercussions that are not being, you know, um, adequately considered when we simply talk about taking a system that was developed for the world of the 1960s broadcast era and copying and pasting it onto 2021 internet. I'd like to step back and, and, and provide a contrary opinion to this whole idea that we are leveling the playing field. Back in the 1950s, you know, as you point out, Andrew, we had three television channels. The Americans had three television channels. Their content seemed to be far more palatable to Canadians than the Canadian content we were producing, and it generated the Broadcasting Act. And next thing you know, it's nothing but Anne Murray 24-7 in Canada. Uh, the, the idea that we're leveling the playing field here strikes uh, untrue to me. 
from a, a bunch of different perspectives. Now, instead of competing against three American channels, we're competing against an entire universe of players all around the world. And on top of that, when we do a search on YouTube, there is inherent bias associated with the algorithm towards the content that is already being consumed, towards the bigger players that are already seeing success. And that makes it that much more difficult for little guys to become big guys in the first place. The, the idea, though, of taking a 1950s approach to this uh, rings a little hollow uh, to the general public as well. But in, at the end of the day, would we have ever seen what Moose Jaw Saskatchewan looks like if CTV wasn't forced to create Canadian content like Corner Gas? Oh, yeah, of course we would. Uh, and indeed, we are now. But would it have been anywhere near as successful and popular if, if some one little guy had created it in his basement? Well, but th that's the thing. In the, in the world that we've left behind, in the world of advertising financed over-the-air broadcast television, you have much more of a point. Because, as I mentioned, that has a built-in bias towards the largest possible audience. It made TV very risk-averse. It made it much uh, inclined towards getting, as I say, the mass audience, the center ground. It didn't have nearly the openings for kind of, of uh, entrepreneurial startups, etc. So that was a, yeah, there were three channels, as you say, and they were all broadcasting basically the same thing. In today's world, when you have, as I say, theoretically infinite number of broadcasters, when borders have essentially disappeared so you can broadcast to anywhere, from anywhere, when things um, pop up and become viral out of nowhere, uh, you talked about the little guy that doesn't get, you just see that constantly happening every single day as stuff springs up out of nowhere and catches fire. Uh, so it's actually not the case that, it, that the system now is uh, built to just promote the biggest guys and continue to promote the biggest guys. To the, that, that's just not what happens every day on the internet is weird stuff that you'd never think would have appealed to anybody suddenly catches fire because it does. It, 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 it touches something in their, in their tastes or their soul or their heart or whatever. And musicians arise out of nowhere. Videos, people become viral video stars out of nowhere. The algorithm is reacting to that. It's not, it's not preconditioning that. The algorithms are designed, but once stuff has already caught fire, they'll then recommend it to you. But stuff catches fire all the time the algorithm's never heard of. So, you know, when you've got millions of tastemakers out there, you don't just have Facebook orchestrating everything, you've got, or, or, or YouTube or anybody else, you've got millions of, of, of you know, content assessors, ordinary human beings, just, just tuning in and watching stuff and deciding what they like and what they don't like. That's just such a completely different world. And it's, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it because we're so used to thinking in terms of the old system, the old regulatory apparatus. And this is particular resonance for, for CanCon because we're used to thinking of Canadians and Canadian culture as being this kind of, uh, you know, weak sister that we can't possibly appeal to anybody else, that no one's going to want to hear about Canadian stories. People are constantly wanting to hear about Canadian stories. We've got to get over this. We have access to the world now, and the world wants to hear our stories. The Japanese are crazy, have always been crazy, for Anne of Green Gables, to take a, a, a quaint uh, example from the past. But you'd never have predicted that, would you? And, and, but it turns out, if you tell a story really well about a particular place in time, it becomes universal. So the, the, the world of the arts is, is, is open to Canadians, and there's now no longer any barrier preventing us. We talk about how the Americans have economies of scale. We've got economies of scale because Americans want to hear Canadian stories as well. And that's being constantly proven as well. So we've got to get over this. this we're, we're not in 1965 anymore. 
I have to I have to kind of jump on this and and fully agree with Andrew, but also you know respond to your uh, your your notion that somehow. Um, the algorithms are promoting the big guys and and little voices don't have a shot here. And I think that, you know, at YouTube, we have uh, any number of case uh, studies that would turn that on its head and demonstrate that, in fact, by having an open platform that has global visibility, where we have uh, this, this model that is based on empowering users to create niche content, give it an give it access to the world and help them find audiences, you know, help audiences find the content that they love, that that has, you know, a completely different effect. So, you know, when you look at um, the diversity of voices that have found a platform on YouTube and have gone on to global success, let me just give you a couple of names here of careers that have started on YouTube. Lily Singh, The Weeknd, Justin Bieber, Sean Mendez. These were all artists that were broken on YouTube, whether music or otherwise. These were creators that the mainstream media executives did not want to hear from until they achieved those global audiences through a platform like YouTube. And all they needed was a shot. All they needed was access to an open platform. And I think that that, you know, really goes to show that um, this is not just about algorithms promoting what's already popular. This is about creators being able to find their voice, express themselves and audiences uh, connecting with them and building a fan base. We should say also, you know, if you look at the actual history of CanCon regulations in the music field, and music's a little different than television because there's the economics of it are different in a lot of ways. But the most revered names in Canadian popular music, the one that are still touchstones today. Please don't say Leonard Cohen. I'm going to say Leonard Cohen because he is revered. He's revered by 18 year olds. Like it's it's an amazing, I, you know, you may not be to your or my taste, but he is revered. How can you not like Leonard Cohen, Michael? <laughs> let's not get into well, that argument. That, that, that's that's the one guy. That's what I'm getting at. No, well, let's look at Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, you know, Gordon Lightfoot. A lot of these names predate CanCon. They became big names worldwide before CanCon because they were they were trying to reach an audience. They were actually, you know, in the traditional sense of, of trying to have a, a story to tell that other people wanted to hear. CanCon comes in and for about 20 or 30 years, what you get is basically middle of the road corporate rock. Oh, see, now you're beating up on Murray McLaughlin. Uh, <laughs> no, he's beating up on Nickelback. Ah, okay, true. Well, or, or platinum blonde or this kind of stuff, right? What what happened, it's, 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 it's exactly like, uh, it's classic kind of small market protectionist uh, outcome that you expect, which is if your CanCon basically says make mass audience uh, appeal for a small market, uh, and that's what they did. So you got very middle of the road music that was designed to, to make money in the Canadian market, and they didn't care whether it, it had found an audience outside that. It's only when first CDs came in and changed some of the economics of the industry, and then uh, internet broadcasters that basically people broke out of that model and said, well, we don't need to to create just for the Canadian market now. We can actually uh, uh, appeal to the world. And and CanCon has basically been an irrelevance ever since. The the regulations now are just they're they're there for no uh, good public policy reason whatsoever. People are listening to Canadian music all over the world, not because anybody's telling them to or because they have to broadcast them, but because they want to. 
So one of the other elements of, of this conversation that we must get to, uh, aside from the idea that maybe we need to make the big streamers pay to help create content for little streamers and, and feed into that system, is the fear of overreach into the little guy content creators. Former CRTC Chair Conrad von Finkenstein and James Mitchell of the Privy Council Office had recommended um, at the Institute the requirement for streamers to register as online broadcasting undertakings, and it should only be applied to companies that have gross revenues from Canada in excess of, say, $80 million per year. I've read the broadcasting, uh, the, C the Bill C-10. I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on a podcast. <laughs> but it seems like a reasonable solution. The way it was sold, the way this legislation was sold was it was only going to apply to a few large foreign-based mega companies like Facebook, like YouTube, etc. Uh, and indeed, there was supposed to be a line in the legislation that would explicitly uh, uh, exclude uh, uh, user-generated content, user-generated uh, 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 the, the user-generated parts of websites like YouTube, um, and somewhere along the way, uh, they decided to take that out because they were getting stick from the constituencies that they're basically serving, which is the uh, the broadcasters and the the craft unions that like to call themselves the cultural creators. Um, uh, but basically, it was in response to interest group pressure. Um, uh, but there's a genuine concern, and then, and then they tried to dress it up by saying, "Well, we're not really we're not regulating you know, individual users. Uh, we're just regulating the people who 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 post this, you know, who, who broadcast their 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 material. We're just forcing them to 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 you know promote quote unquote Canadian content. Again, we can get into how you even define Canadian content. Sure, but right. it was they were playing with word games with words. They they are in fact going to be regulating." user-generated content. Article 4.1. That's the one they took out. It read, this act does not apply in respect of programs that are uploaded to an online undertaking that provide a social media service by a user of the service who is not the provider of the service. I know that that was taken out in committee. So maybe I can uh, jump in here because I think, you know, this has been one of the really challenging and, and frankly frustrating aspects of this entire debate is what does the bill actually do when it comes to users and user generated content? And so there were two sections involved here. One is section 2.1, which states that individuals will not be considered broadcasters. And the next one was section 4.1 that said that the content that individuals uploaded to the platforms would not be uh, covered by the act. They would be excluded from the act. And what the government did in committee was they maintained section 2.1 and they dropped section 4.1, hence this controversy over what the implications of that would be. And there is no threshold currently um, in the bill, whether, you know, whether that's on um, the platforms themselves or, you know, uh, the online undertakings as to who is considered covered. If you are, um, if you are an online undertaking, you are captured and the content of the user is captured. And so when, you know, when the minister and others say, well, you know, individuals don't need to be concerned because they're not going to be considered broadcasters. Yeah, you or I, we, we won't be called in front of the CRTC. But the content that we upload to any platform, not just YouTube, will be considered a broadcast platform 
uh, program. That is explicitly what the consequences of removing Section 4.1 is. And so I think it's a little bit, you know, too cute by half. And this is where, you know, I think it's why so many experts in this area are saying, listen, whether you regulate the speaker or the speech, it raises the same questions and concerns. Some people raise specters of, of all embracing censorship that will come out of this and Others have said, well, look, that's way over the top. All the CRTC does is just regulate for Canadian content, which, as I say, I, I would be bothered if they're interfering with user-generated content, even on a CanCon basis. But let's not kid ourselves. The CRTC is in the business of regulating content, either directly or through its front group, the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council. It has always been in that business, and it has done so at, at times in quite draconian ways. It forced Quebec's largest, Quebec City's largest English-speaking radio station off the air because one of its hosts was rude to people. It uh, dictated that, that uh, I think it was Global TV, couldn't show the mighty Morphin Power Rangers because the kiddies might be imitating their, their, their karate moves. Uh, it, you know, it has, it, 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 has, it has extensively regulated what is shown on, on Canadian television and what is uh, broadcast on Canadian radio for content reasons. And I, I am not at all convinced and not at all comfortable with the idea that the CRTC, given its track record, given its current leadership, given the, the predilections of this government, that it wouldn't get into that with regard to user-generated content as well. I don't think we should be confident or, com or, or comfortable about that at all. The original bill reflected an Im important balance, right, of the appropriate um, scope of regulation when it came to something as sensitive as user-generated content. And by removing Section 4.1, it threw that balance out of whack. And that's why we're here today. If Canadian content rules exist to ensure that Canadians see themselves in the content they consume, it's being argued that the definition of Canadian you know, to your point, Andrew, shouldn't be based on the number of Canadian directors, producers, and crew that were on set of the day that they created the content, which is sort of a f throwback to the, that 1950s, 60s idea back in CanCon and radio, where you split the song into four parts, who wrote it, who, who produced it, who directed it, all that kind of stuff. But in a similar vein, if the rules are designed to ensure that we see ourselves in what we consume. It's been suggested that maybe we ought not to be defining what is Canadian based upon who made it, but the amount of on-screen Canadian content that we actually see, that we actually see ourselves reflected. I don't agree with any of the, the, whole, the whole rationale for Canadian content. I'll, I'll put that to one side, but let me just put that on the shelf for now. Even the way you phrase that, there's no way anybody can define this with any coherence. Uh, it, it, as I say, you can either talk, let's, let's say you define it in terms of the people involved. Uh, if you're making a film, is it the director or is it the writer or is it the stars? How many of the stars have to be Canadian? How do you define whether the director or the star or the writer is Canadian? Is it where they live? Is it where they were born? Is it what they write about? Uh, if you're talking about a, can a Canadian theme, what is a Canadian theme? Uh, and, and when you look at the actual track record of how it's been uh, uh, assessed, you get these crazy anomalies that if you uh, broadcast a Blue Jays game from Toronto, that's CanCon. Okay, you're playing an American game in America with no Canadians involved, but one of the teams happens to be based in Toronto, so you call that Canadian content. Uh, whereas, famously, Brian Adams was not CanCon because I think it was his co-writer was American. Um, uh, you know, if, 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 if somebody writes, if, so, if a foreign writer sets a book in a Canadian locale, with Canadian characters, 
is that CanCon or do we mark it down because the writer happens to be from somewhere else? If a Canadian writer, born and bred here, writes a book that's set in France, is that CanCon or do we mark it down because it's set somewhere else? Come back to my original thing that I put on the shelf. What's the rationale here? Is there any artistic theory that you or I are aware of that says that a work of art is a greater work of art because it's a story told by Canadians to other Canadians that tells them how Canadian they are? No, there's no artistic rationale for it. It's a political one. It's that, we're, it's that somehow we will use the regulatory apparatus of the state to encourage the arts to inculcate in Canadians a stronger sense of their Canadianism. Why? Because we're worried that if we don't, the Americans will absorb us and somehow we'll end up as part of the American colossus. That's a very thin read. The notion that our Canadianism is defended by a thin blue line of Canadian magazines and Canadian TV shows that people don't watch. Finally, point is, or a couple of points is, most of the stuff that we're, or a large, large, large part of the stuff that we're so afraid of that's coming in from the States is produced by Canadians down in the States. Right, your point about Martin Short being... There's a million a, people. First of all, there's a million Canadians in L.A. producing, you know, a lot of them producing the stuff that we then sneer at as being American. And yes, the final point is, if we're try really trying to define who Canadians are, who are we? We're the people who watch a lot of American television. That's a big part of our, our cultural psyche, is that we process American television through our distanced, ironic Amer Canadian uh, uh, take on it. So if, if the idea is we're supposed to protect ourselves from this American content that is part of who we are, then it just becomes completely uh, self-contradictory. I want to take some of the points you made, Andrew, about what it actually looks like when you're trying to determine Canadian content <laughs> and then apply that to an online world. You know, how on earth is that appropriate for a digital creator to have to kind of apply these hoops to the content that they create, how you know is that the right um, uh, approach when you look at um, an in a, you know someone who is starting out, trying to build their channel, grow their audience, reach some level of success, and this is what we're going the hoops that we're we're asking them to jump through. Is it even relevant? to the work that they are doing? And what kind of barriers does that impose on their ability to gain steam, to grow, and to reach the global audience? I, I'm concerned that what it simply does is it imposes the same old traditional gatekeepers on what has been an open platform that has really worked for Canadian creators. And we're not looking at it also from the standpoint of the audience. And I think one of the damages that CanCon has done over the years is made Canadian audiences mistrustful of Canadian culture because it feels kind of like it's being forced upon them and that, it's, it's, that there's something that the game has been rigged in some way. By contrast, when people discover something for themselves, I, I, and every writer or artist knows this, that the worst thing you can do is lead the audience by the hand or by the nose. The worst thing you can do is over-explain a point in a column. You have to let the audience discover things for themselves. And there's a delight when people discover something and embrace it for themselves, as they do every day with these YouTube stars, for example. Uh, I, I just think we have to um, look at it this way, is that, is that there's absolutely nothing preventing today, absolutely nothing preventing a Canadian audience from discovering and embracing a Canadian singer, a Canadian writer, a, a Canadian film or whatever. Uh, uh, and so if there's nothing anymore preventing them, as maybe there was 40, 50 years ago, 
then why, why, why are we trying to force it upon them since we can't ultimately force it upon them anyway? We can, we can force them to pay for it, but we can't force them to watch it or to listen to it. it, 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 it it's, a, it's a mugs game. I appreciate as part of this conversation, your perspectives as well. And I think for the purposes of disclosure, I just want to confirm this is a 100% Canadian content production we're involved in here today. <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to ask Ian Scott. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Andrew Coyne is a columnist with The Globe and Mail. Jeanette Patel is the head of government affairs and public policy for YouTube in Canada. Still to come, from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, June 25th, the state of health and healthcare data. We'll learn where we're at and where we need to go with Statistics Canada's Lynn Barr-Telford, Don Drummond of Queen's University, and Kathleen Morris of the Canadian Institute of Health Information. And July 13th, barriers to mobility, land transfer taxes as a municipal tool with the Institute's Director of Public Affairs, Ben Dacus, Councillor Shelley Carroll of the City of Toronto, and the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board's Jason Mercer. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.